and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this week's episode, Simon spoke to Dan Franklin, who is the associate editor of Jonathan Cape. So Dan is a legendary figure in British publishing. Uh, He used to run Jonathan Cape, uh, and he now still works there three days a week. He edits some of the most famous uh, British literary novelists, including Ian McEwan uh, and Julian Barnes. And he spoke really fascinatingly about his own long career and also about what it means to be uh, an editor, both of fiction and of non-fiction. We hope you enjoy the episode. Okay, I'm here with Dan Franklin at the uh, headquarters of Penguin Random House in, in central London. Dan, could we start off with you just telling me a bit about your, your early career and your entry into publishing in the 1970s and how, how the business then compared to how it is now? Um, I, started, I started with Peter Owen, who was a tiny independent publisher. So it was completely atypical and remained so. I mean, it, the, the company's still going, which is completely astonishing. Um, but it was very, very atypical at the time. Um, and I don't, you know, I, I don't think one can extrapolate from that to the general um, state of publishing as a whole. But there are certain things that you can certainly talk about. I started in 1970 and I was called the sales assistant. I think the staff was about four people and I worked in the office in the morning where I had to mark up the invoices as they came in by post, you know, which is incredible now. Um, And I wrote down on each one what the discount was. So I wrote one-third, etc., etc., that was then passed on to the warehouse. And the warehouse was positively... The whole thing was Dickensian. The warehouse was in off the Gloucester Road and um, still had copies of all the books that Peter had published 20 years beforehand, sitting okay. there in mouldering stacks. But in the afternoon, I went out... And I was the sales rep in London for the imprint. And that's where, I mean, that's where it's completely different. Because there were only, I only had to make about six calls ever. Because there weren't any bookshops. Okay. I mean, there was Hatchards and there was Foils and there were about four others. I mean, I'm exaggerating, but it was, it was almost like that. So the whole world was utterly different from the, from a bookselling point of view. And where had you come from? Had you done a humanities degree? or what? I'd was done your... English and American literature at UEA. Okay. And I published, a, I published a poetry magazine while there. And that was... It was different then. It was, you, didn't, you didn't have to... You didn't have to get a job. It was sort of... Lots of people went travelling or whatever. Yeah. Um, and I wanted a job, but the only thing that I could think that I could do... And I sort of thought to myself, I would, you know, I, I, would, I would read the papers and I would think, God, you ought to get so-and-so to write a book. Okay. And then six months later... 
Tom Mashler, who then ran Cape, who was the best publisher at the time, then published exactly that book okay. and sometimes made a success of it. And so I thought maybe I could do this. And at that time, all these, in what we would now refer to as imprints, were separate firms? Yeah. Were they? Okay. Yeah. And uh, the actual sort of volume of books being published, was that much smaller? No, I don't think so. I, I don't know. I honestly okay. don't know. But I, but I don't think so. I don't think that much smaller. Sure. And what, what were the relative advantages and disadvantages of the, the landscape as it was constituted then compared to how things are now? Again, it's very difficult for me to say because I was in a completely atypical company. Yeah. Peter Owen was publishing mainly translated fiction and sort of odd, eccentric, non-fiction, lots of kind of counter-culturary kind of books, which appealed to me very much. I mean, I, you know, I was probably still a hippie in 1970, mm. and so he had lots of dope books, etc., etc. Um, but he was a very, very defensive publisher, in that he... He printed very, very small print runs and priced at least one or two pounds higher than almost everybody else in the market. Um, Which, in the end, drove me up the wall, you know, because if he had something that was wonderful and, you know, you could really do something with it one thought he wouldn't reprint it and so on and so forth and were there agents at that stage in the, in the way that they yes were but again absolutely there were agents but he never dealt with them okay. because he paid peanuts so I had no absolutely no experience of agents at all until I left and so what was your movement on from Peter Owen onwards? Well, within Peter Owen I went from the sales assistant job to becoming sort of junior editor and then I became the, the, the single editor there so I was responsible for everything um, and I stayed there for far too long it was a serious career error as it why were. so? why? I felt kind of responsible I think but why was it an error? because I I, I was way behind my co-evils as it were oh, ok um you know, if you look at if, if you have a career path, etc., etc., but from there I went to Harville Press, as it was then constituted, okay. which is part of Collins, and it published translations again. So I was well qualified for that. Yeah. And fiction mostly. Yeah, and really seriously weird non-fiction. Could you give an example? Um, well, it was run, the big, the big boss was a wonderful man called Adrian House who loved publishing books about sort of African animals. Okay. If a book came in which had a leopard with its tail hanging down off a branch of a tree, Bob's your uncle, he would right. die, you know. Okay. And and then what was your movement after that? After that, I was headhunted to go to Heinemann, okay. 
Which was independent at the time. Which was independent... Just... Was it independent? Yes, it was, it was. Um, but as soon as I got there... I mean, I was... I was... I, I was head... Well, actually, we've left out a stage. We've, we must go back a bit. Harville belonged to Collins, so it was within the Collins office. And Collins, which was then run... And this is re- was really interesting. I mean, it was then run. It was the end of a sort of golden age. It was run by gentlemen. Okay. So the editorial directors were Mark Bonham Carter, Philip Ziegler, Richard Ollard. And if they, you know, they go out to lunch every day in the Reform Club, okay. quite often with the Home Secretary or the foreign, you know, they yeah. walked with kings these people um, but it was run by hard-headed Scotsman, it was run by Ian Chapman senior, father of the current Ian Chapman who runs, runs Simon and & Schuster and he and his wife were sort of the power in the land and they used to have they had a sort of every July there was usually a revolution and kind of people were just murdered, as it were. Authors or staff? Staff. Okay. Really senior, crucial people. Okay. And everybody moved around, and you'd go, you'd walk across the roads of the Arts Club in Albemarle Street, and you'd look, there was a new family tree, and you'd see who'd gone, and you'd okay. see where you ended up. So I moved from Harville. To Collins General, okay. and Christopher McElhose, who was running Collins General, moved and took over Harville. So, what year are we talking about? Yeah. No idea, but I would say something like 80, 81, 82. Okay, and that was to me appalling. I mean, really, Collins General were. They were Alistair MacLean, they were Hammond Innes. Yeah. You know, they were the most commercial. They were mammon personified. Right. Whereas I was holier than thou and had just been editing Life and Fate, you know. Yeah. So it was it was it was horrifying. But actually I very much enjoyed it. There were some wonderful people. You'd actually there. been editing Life and Fate at that stage. Yeah. yeah. Was that the first English? That's a big thing I did at Harville. Okay. It took me Could you year. talk a little bit about that? This is Vasily Grossman's yeah. World War Two novel. Yeah, yeah. It was it was very it was very it was very it was just it was very memorable. I mean, I don't think I made any contribution at all. But it was translated by Robert Chandler, you know, who's okay. the great translator from the Russian. And I think it was his first big translation. And he had just lost both his legs in a bicycling accident at Highbury Corner. So he was completely crippled. So I had to go to him somewhere in Finsbury Park or somewhere, and we sat there all day. Okay. Um, and I made the mistake. He got, offered me a cup of tea the first day I was there, and I never had one again because he was macrobiotic. And it was absolutely the most disgusting thing I've ever eaten. But we okay. sat there and we produced this 
And how had the text come out of Russia at that stage? Had it was it, it had been smuggled out? Sam is dead. Yeah. yeah. But and so just returning, you you were then moved into this extremely commercial yeah. world in the early eighties. Yeah. And I, my particular thing, I did, you know, my particular, my sort of major author there was Eric Newby. Okay, who wrote A Short Walk in the Hindu Kush. Yeah, who I adored. And he, and he was at the end of his career. Mm. And it was just a, it was just a, a, a joy working with him. Okay. And he became a, he became a good friend, um, and then I was the actual the, the editorial director of Collins. Then was Simon King, who was a wonderful, wonderful man. Died last year, and he he said, you know, that's when I started commissioning. He said, okay. have you got any ideas? And so I started buying books in a very, very rudimentary form. Initially, doing, antho- I did a series of anthologies, which is a very good way of getting to know agents and yeah. you could get to know authors. Um, and then, um, and then I was headhunted. But it was beginning to, towards the end of the, my time at Collins. It was beginning to go really horrible. And then you went to Cape. No, then I went to Heinemann. Okay. I was then headhunted for Heinemann. Okay. And, and before moving on with the chronology, could we talk a bit about what being a, a book editor, in your view, involves? What is the heart of the job? Um, well, you're, I mean, you're, you are... You're making, the, you're making the book as good as you can get it. Um... But only, I mean, I firmly believe that the author knows best um, unless they, I mean, occasionally one throws one's hand up and says, no, okay, we could, this isn't going to work. But otherwise, you know, there's a difference between American editors and English editors. You know, they think we don't edit because we don't force people to change every sentence as mm. they do in the States. But mainly now in a company like this, it is that you're actually, you are the prime representative for that author and that book. Internally. Internally, with, it, with, all, the, with all the various departments. Okay. As well as working on the text. And can we, can we then go back to, um, so from, from Heinemann in the 80s, what are, your, what are you doing when you're in that role? Well... This is when one, we, now we're really getting into corporate. This is where the money starts coming okay. in. Because Heinemann is still independent. Well, yeah, so. but as soon as I got there, almost immediately, there was a day when every single director of the company resigned. Okay. And I had no idea why. I'm still, still not entirely sure to this day, although some of them have friends of mine but it was when they were taken over by octopus okay and i was the last person left i was the kind of the boy on the burning deck so i had to go to the frankfurt book fair and octopus was a publishing firm or a yeah yeah sort of big paul hamlin conglomerate right 
made made millions. Paul Hamlin, Paul Hamlin was a genius. Made millions selling cheap illustrated books, all printed in Czechoslovakia at the end of the war when there was no Czechoslovakia had no industry, and he. Uh, but they, you know, they had this ability to print illustrated books, and he gave them loads and loads of work. And I once went there on a on a sort of mission for, with people from Oxford, and he is at Paul Paul Hamlin was regarded as a saint there. The people had his picture on the wall. Okay. So anyway, they but again they were they were sort of ruthlessly commercial. Um, and they acquired Heinemann and Secker, which were joined together then. Um, and everybody, everybody resigned, except for you, except for me, because I was too kind of you know I was too naive. I didn't know what the uh, what, we, the, what the issues in were in the mid eighties. Yeah, and I remember how you know I, my boss was Fanny Blake. Um, and I had to go to the Frankfurt Book Fair for the first time okay. with her a list of appointments and explain to everybody, I'm terribly sorry, she's left, etc., etc. <laughs> and then in came Helen Fraser, okay. with whom I'd worked at Collins, and she'd been... Collins, meanwhile, Eddie Bell had, had done his mischief. He'd fired Simon King. Helen Fraser had stood up for Simon King, and so she got fired. And she had to she she had to do six months gardening leave. Okay. And then she got the job at Heinemann. Okay. And then life became briefly really good fun. And who were you publishing at that time? Well, Famously, I mean, this is this is what this is one of my famously tarsome anecdotes, which I'll give you. Do, do tell. Well, famously, I was I was I was in the, <coughs> I was in the office on Christmas Eve. Right. No one else in London was working on Christmas Eve, and I was rung up by Marianne Valmans, who now runs Doubleday at Transworld, who was then. Representing Doubleday in London, they Doubleday always had somebody in London who sold their books for them. The American that made, you know, the American company, and she rang up and she had this book called Moonwalk by Michael Jackson, and he was then huge king of the world. And they were publishing, Doubleday US were publishing it in February. Mm-hmm. The editor in America was Jackie Kennedy. Yeah. And I don't think I even read it, actually. I just said, OK, and I offered her a sum of money. And she had to accept it because she had to sell it before Christmas okay. due to the English proclivity for taking long Christmas holidays. Okay. If she'd waited... Till everyone came back on January the third or whatever, it would have been too late. So I bought this, and um, 
it was terrible. I mean, it was really. And I, I looked it up. It, it would it had been like rewritten completely in draft and things like they'd fired one writer and yeah, stuff like that. Yeah, and it was, but it was sort of you know I love children, I love trees, you know. So. Okay. But but he was king of the world. I think it was, I think it was number one for something like fifty two weeks. You know. Okay. But it was so amazing. It just went on and on and on. And you also published Sex by Madonna. Yeah, that was at Secca. Okay, how did that come about? That I was made to do. Okay. I mean, the, the, my then boss loved that kind of thing, so he sort of came back from America and said, do, the, you know, do this book on your list. Okay. And no, I never met her. And we never... It sold out within 24 hours. Okay. And it never reprinted. Okay. We had a ludicrous launch party in that Borders or whatever it was. In, oh, I think it was called Borders, but anyway, in in, in Charing Cross Road with a Madonna impersonator. <laughs> it was just the whole thing was so. Who was who was branded as the impersonator? Were you passing yeah. passing her off? As no, it was branded. It was okay. really really sort of cheap and. Could we could we move from from those very commercial things to talking about some of the really literary writers that right. you've worked with, so McEwen and people like that? When did these relationships begin? Well, they began when I got here, but but primarily when I was at Heinemann. Yeah. Crucially, that the, there was one month when I got on the slush pile. And there was such a thing in those days. I got the first chapter of The Lost Continent by Bill Bryson, yeah. which I would argue is the best thing he's ever written. Um, so I commissioned that. And he was what, an unknown sub-editor? He was a sub-editor on The Independent. Yeah. Um, and hadn't published anything? Like no. That. I think he may have published... He did a dictionary... Okay. A sort of writer's and editor's dictionary. I think he may have done that before, before the Lost Continent. Yeah. And then the same month, the commitments, Roddy Doyle. And that was. I mean, which, that was, which year is this? God, I can't remember, but eighty-seven, something like that. Okay. Um. Yeah, so it did, I think it probably was 87, 88. Okay. And, um, and that was a sort of key moment. I mean, that was the first fiction that I published because I was supposed to be doing non-fiction. Yeah. But I, you know, I loved that book and I loved the... I loved that music, so it was, so it was absolutely... And, and were these coming in unagented? They were literally yeah. on the slush pile? Yeah, yeah. And so was there anything else in this magic month that you... No, okay. it's enough for one month. I mean, that's yeah. your... That's actually your lifetime supply. Yeah. If you're getting through from the slush pile, you never get more than yeah. two in a lifetime. Okay. You know, so it was... What did you see in them? Well, Bryson was a ge- genius. I mean, Bryson, you literally, you know, you wet yourself reading this... I mean, it was ten pages. Yeah. And it was, you know, people who can write funny. And that was really, it was really, really funny. 
And what, I haven't read that. I've read a lot of other Bryson, but what is the Lost Continent about? Lost Continent is it's 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 about his childhood. It's him going back. It's him going back to America okay. and rechasing. It starts. Something like I grew up in Des Moines, Iowa. Somebody had to, and yeah. then it's all about the hor- horrors of growing up in yeah, Des Moines and travelling round and going to the places where he would go with his with his father in the back of the car, etc., okay. etc. And he, he, what he was, what he was wanting was to be commissioned to go to America to, to do this road trip. I think I paid him in princely fifteen hundred pounds, and 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 he went off and did it. Okay. Um, then, when the boat was finished, our rights director was then Felicity Rubenstein auctioned it in America and sold it for three hundred and fifty thousand dollars. In something. the late eighties. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so a lot of money. Yeah. And changed his life, yeah. changed my life, etc., etc. How did it change your life? Well, just because suddenly, you know, I you had this big. I made the company lots of money. And did that change your kind of currency internally? internally? Yeah, I mean, it, it's a, it, you know, people. If you, if you have a success, then people are more inclined to believe you when you tell them about the next thing that you yeah. think is going to work. And what was the next thing? Can't remember. Okay, and then so going back to. McEwen and people that that becomes a cape yeah. does it I mean, when do you move to cape well the key thing okay so after three years or something at Heinemann I'm then I'm then appointed to run Seca okay which is the really serious job doing really serious literary books okay fiction yeah, yeah. and non-fiction okay. it's a wonderful list and I was I sitting in there as Robin Robertson, and he was already working there. So we've worked together for thirty years, and he was doing he was doing amazing publishing when I got there and went on to do you know to do even more to do to to to, to do kind of in Welsh and so on and so forth, and. But I could then, I then had my own list in which I could experiment. Okay. And who were your writers at that stage? Um, well, the key, I mean, I was, you know, I was, Roddy obviously became crucially important yeah. because then, you know, there's the film of, film of the, film of the commitments, the snapper, and then the van, shortlisted for the Booker Prize. Paddy Clark then won the Booker. Yeah. Um, and I was editing, when I was editing, I was editing, the people who were still there, I was editing Malcolm Bradbury and David Lodge. Mm. I mean, Malcolm Bradbury taught me at UEA. So that was a great pleasure. Yeah. But then I was taking on people like Louis de Bernier. Um, and who was an unknown? Who was a total unknown. How yeah. did you find him? He had an agent who was okay. just sent in. And how does your relationship with a writer change from them being a complete unknown to them being a, a Booker Prize winner or something like that? How do you how do you manage those relationships? Well, I mean, I'm trying to think of one of the writers of mine who've won the Booker. 
I mean, it's not. There's never been a problem in that. I mean, the only sort of, as it were. I mean, otherwise, you know, it's Barnes and McEwen who were who were well well established long before I got here, yeah. um, and should have won the book long before. Um, but with Roddy, um, Roddy's the most grounded author in the universe. I mean, he ought to, I always say he ought to give classes for young writers about how you behave. Because from the word go, he, he knew exactly what he was doing. Could you give some examples? His first interview was in the Groucho Club, some journalist. Yeah. And that was his first interview for his novel, which most people, you know, would be nervous. And, yeah. and he came out and he said, um, if, if you ever make me go in a place like that ever again, I'm leaving. You know, and he just knew. Yeah. And when you're when you're editing fiction, what what are you doing? What are the discussions? What are you? I'm not on? doing anything. I'm a really, really bad fiction editor. Okay. Um, I have no. I find that hard to believe. No, it's true. All I can do is recognize almost everything that I've taken on has been really good when I've taken it on. Okay. I'm, you know, the, I, I have the greatest admiration for people who say change third person to first person, etc., etc. Yeah. And I've worked with lots of wonderful editors, but I'm not one of them. Okay. I've employed them, you know, and Robin is really good at that, and there are people out there who are brilliant at it. But I, I, I quite truthfully, it's not my skill. So what is your skill? I think I'm much better at non-fiction. But I mean, if I have one, it is that, you know, that... Because the whole thing is gambling, right? Yeah. What we do. So, you know, my skill is thinking it's worth putting all my chips on that particular... Okay. And how is it different in non-fiction? Um... hard to describe but the structure is different you know you're not you're not taking apart something that is is absolutely crucial in the way that is in in fiction and it's easier to wrestle with an author's work and I think they will accept it more than if the novelist would and how, when did you come to Cape then? I came to Cape in 93. Okay. And what was Cape's kind of position then in the, the British literary market? It, it had... It had changed. I mean, Tom Mashler... When Tom Mashler ran it... It, you know, which is when I was... You know, I used to go, when I was a teenager, I used to go to the library and I would take out every single Cape novel just by looking at the colophon. Really? Okay. Yeah, because, I mean, they were amazing. They were simply amazing. Could you give some examples? Who were they publishing at that? Well, they were, pu- you know, they were publishing Catch-22, Thomas Pynchon, you know, McEwen, Barnes, Rushdie, you know, it was, it was Tom and, and, and Liz Calder. Yeah. 
amazing American list. Um, and they were independent at that time. Yeah. yeah. Then they're taken over by Random House. Before you arrived. Yeah. yeah. And, and David Godwin had been running it, and I, I, I'd succeeded David Godwin at SECA as well. Okay. So we have this kind of odd sort of symbiotic relationship. And I had at least twice, if not three times, tr it was obviously the place that I wanted to work. Yeah. It had, to, to me, Cape had the best list. Cape was the best publisher. Um, and I applied, as I say, several times to, to Tom and, and never got the job. Yeah. So I arrived and then I was his boss. Okay. <laughs> And so when, when when you arrive in '93, it's part of Random House. But and who were the? How does how does that uh, cape of '93 compare to the cape as a teenager? You were taking every book out of the. Well, it's a change because David had been had been running it, you know, in, in the interregnum. Yeah. There was still, there was still the, you know, the Barnes, Rushdie, Amos. McEwen axis there yeah. but but he had taken on David had taken on many many other writers of his taste okay. and he'd, he'd he had a wonderful wonderful designer in Pete Dyer famous jacket designer who who had actually been at Seca with us at one point and um and he had Mark Hoban, who is the most brilliant photographic publisher in this country. Okay. So he was doing, you know, Maplethorpe and Avedon and so on and so forth. Yeah. And um, and some wonderful books, but not the. It wasn't quite. It wasn't quite the kind of glorious thing that it was ten years earlier. Yeah. In my view. And that McEwen Amos Rushdie axis, how how much of an axis is it, both in within publishing but within the broader literary landscape? And are, are they all a kind of a gang who hang out together in reality? They're all friends. Yeah. I think they hang out very little, yeah. in that they're different ends of the world, as it were. Yeah. Um, but they're still, I mean, they are, you know, they are still completely ludicrously the last, the, 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 they are the last kind of literary gang that everybody lumps together. Yeah. And it's extraordinary, you know, there's, I mean, the, all the subsequent people, they don't have gangs, as it when, were. When were they first... Well, because of the first Bill Buford Granton list, right, I from, think. from 83. Yeah. Yeah. And because they were all on that. And they were, you know, and they were... They were friends, and, you know, and then... So I, I arrived, you know, almost as soon as I arrived. I had the awful Martin Amos when in, he moved information. When he moved agent. Yeah. Yeah. And how did that affect you as the publisher? Well, it was it was just awful, you know, that that 
this to give context for those who don't know is when he correct me if I'm wrong he fired his longtime agent his longtime agent being Pat Kavanagh yeah. who was Julian Barnes's wife yeah. and then he you know famously you know the, the legend has it that you know he was having his teeth fixed in New York and he needed lots of money yeah. and, and so he moved to Andrew Wiley that was the moment when everybody was moving to Andrew Wiley. Okay. He, he was literally cleaning up. Um, that, roughly at that period, sorry. Um, Why was that? What could he offer? Money? Mm. Yeah. But I think more to the point, he could... He could... You know, he he could recite the first ten pages of Finnegan's Wake. Okay, what was it? What's he like to deal with compared to a sort of old school London agent? Total, uh, total shock. Yeah, I mean, really, really terrifying. How so? Um, I mean, he's not like that now, but in those days, he was totally. Iconoclastic. He didn't. He didn't give a toss about, you know, old-fashioned relationships, etc., etc. Yeah. You know, he would he would break um, break contracts, break option clauses, etc., etc. But he was completely brilliant because he had he only took on people who were really, really, really extraordinarily good. He didn't have any... Most people, publishers and agents, have people who aren't very good, who make lots of money. He didn't have any of them. And we always try and talk with everyone in every context about money on the podcast. How has the the amounts of money being paid for both for the kind of fiction and the kind of non-fiction you publish changed over your well, at, at, at this particular moment, well, actually, it's when when I was at Seca that it really started. Um, that then became competition. Um, when Peter Strauss was running Picador, he was very aggressively trying to trying to sort of build a list, and and he would. We saw him as a major threat. I.e., he was offering lots and lots of money, yeah. um, and that was when you know some of these famous advances started getting paid. Like Amos being paid half a million. Yeah, but it was Carmen Khalil buying Michael Holroyd's Bernard Shaw. Okay, a biography. Yeah, yeah. which was really, which I think was six hundred and twenty-five grand, something like that. And when was that? And that was a you'll have to check but whenever it you know just before it came out and it was that was really astonishing okay you know because normally in those days probably you know if you were a biographer you'd be lucky if you got 30 grand or something you know and suddenly it became the whole thing became an industry yeah and what about more broadly how it's changed now I mean it's it's gone the other way yeah yeah when did that happen post 2008 crash everything changed in that I mean there used to be a time when if you want to buy a book 
you do you do what's called you know a P&L and you, you do all your numbers yeah with based on projected sales yeah. yeah and in the old days you know you you put in people just put in completely ludicrous figures really and everybody you know this this still happens occasionally you know the big there are always three or four they're always first novels because they don't have any track record, so that they, you know they've got no criminal record. They, they haven't got any book track figures, so the editor can say this is going to sell. Yeah. And four of them work. Right. But they but they always go for lots of money these days. I mean, another point I was interested in. I read recently the the comments made by Philip Pullman and Anthony Beaver and the Society of Authors about authors' earnings and advances. And it, there was a, the Society of Authors said that um, publishers' actual spend on acquisition of books is about three percent of their turnover. Is that is that correct? It seems very low. I don't know whether that's correct. Okay, because it seems that um, you know the, the point that they were making is that the, the book trade has been in recent years relatively buoyant, but authors' earnings have stagnated or fallen. Yeah. Why is that happening? Um. Amazon. Okay. I mean, there's this crucial thing, and, and again, around it, when Amazon starts, whenever that was, yeah. you know, 1990 or something. That yeah. Publishers, publishers put in what's known as a high discount clause okay. in their contracts with Amazon. No, in the, generally, okay. they said it, you know for sales. Sales at at a discount of over a certain percentage, yeah. you, we will only pay four fifths of the prevailing royalty or whatever. Okay. Amazon arrive when once Amazon are up and running, they the sales are, the sales are enormous. Okay. So you have something like. Captain Corelli, when it came out in paperback, yeah. would sell, you know, however many, 500,000 copies. Okay. So Louis sitting at home going chickety chick, 10, you know, 10% of 8.99 times, you know, I would be yeah. getting this. And in fact, suddenly, he's getting nothing like that. And why? Because, uh, because of the, it's all this high discount. So he's getting a much smaller royalty. But it seems that even if the publishers themselves are making more money, then I understand the role that Amazon has, but how can the publishers be making more money but the author's taking, be going lower? Surely that's about decisions made within the publisher, not externally by the marketplace. I mean, it depends on... I, I, don't, think, I, don't, I, don't, think, I don't think the publishers are making... I don't, I don't think that percentage has changed okay. in my lifetime. Okay. In some cases, it probably definitely has. I mean, if you had a big bestseller, yeah. you know, and you're reprinting it over and over again, that's very, very profitable. Yeah. Has, has there become an increasing desire to get a few best-selling books as opposed to a larger spread? Of yeah, them? that's yeah. what the corporation wants. Yeah. How do you feel about that? I hate it. Yeah. 
you know, I mean, I mean, you know, they don't. Nobody's nobody's ever said that to me. But it's a it's a sort of unwritten. You know, what they want is for you to publish. You know, the word they use is focus. What does that mean in that context? Don't publish. Don't publish ninety percent of this rubbish. But as you said earlier, just, it, it's, just, a, it's a gamble. Though, right? Yeah, you never know exactly what's going to be the big. When I when I started, it, you were regarded as a genius if one out of every five books you published was, I don't know whether it was bestseller or so, was successful. Yeah. And there are, I think, there are probably places now where you wouldn't be allowed that luxury. Okay. You'd be expected to have a sort of better hit rate than that. I don't see how you can. Yeah. Because. I believe I've you know I've I've always because I don't you know I don't publish crap I've always believed that that the books were wonderful yeah and you have to throw them at the wall and some of them stick what what has most surprised you for for, for sticking for being a hit and perhaps also the other way around what have there been something you thought is going to be a smash and then there were zillions of them yeah but I, I, you know too many to name but. I don't know. I don't. I, I don't think. I, I don't think I can answer that. Actually, what about the first part thing? A surprise hit? No, as I say, I always think they're going to work. Okay. <laughs> and can we talk about some of your your more recent writers? So, so Matt Haig. How did he come across your again? Just from an agent. Yeah. And that was. It was a novel. Yeah, and I like. I, I like. I like, um, I don't do them anymore, but I like very English books. And it was very, very English. And I like, I like sort of weird, odd. So it was narrated by a Labrador. Okay. So you looked at a family through the eyes of, it's called The Last Family in England. Yeah. And you looked at this family through the eyes of the Labrador and the okay. family was falling apart. And it was brilliantly done. Yeah. And did very well, but then Then his subsequent books on And then I did so I think two more which didn't work. Okay. And then he moved to Canongate and the rest is history, you know, yeah. which is wonderful. Do, how if a writer if you sign someone up and they produce a book and it's not doesn't do that well will they still get a second shot or is that changing again that's becoming more difficult but but here certainly within this division they would get a second shot they might have more trouble getting a third shot but they definitely have trouble getting a fourth Whereas famously, I think Graham Greene worked with book ten. Okay. So you know you measure is what book three. Yeah, or, or whatever. Like you know, you measure people by you measure publishers by how loyal they remain. Yeah. And I mean, the key case for me is Tessa Hadley. Okay. You know, that's book seven or eight. Okay. Uh, which we're publishing late late in the day, which we're publishing next month. Yeah. And it just it just looks as though finally her moment has come. 
And is there now much more investment in covers, in design, and that sort of in kind of book yeah. as artifact? Yeah. And is that that's a, an ebook response, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, definitely. And how is that? How, are you involved in that kind of thing? Or no, not so. <coughs> I mean, I certainly, I you know, I publish them. Yeah. And we have a brilliant design director who is very, very good at doing them. But I don't personally. I don't sort of, you know, I don't. I mean, the things that where I, you know, where I kind of get my kicks that way yeah. is, is publishing graphic novels. Well, t- can you tell me a bit about your where your interest in that came from? Well, I started in nineteen ninety eight. Um, when Random House Children's Books they published Raymond Briggs in paperback and they said look we've got this new Raymond Briggs this is not the post-nuclear war no this is Ethel and Ernest a book about his parents and they said we don't think this is a, a children's book which indeed it isn't and would would you be interested? So I said, yeah, absolutely, because you know, my children were then young. I was spending my life reading them, Raymond Briggs, and 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 it, you know, as soon as I saw it, I just saw the pencil version of it. I thought this is a work of genius, and that and started this this list, which the first one, and I think you know at that point I thought it would probably be a one-off. Did you face scepticism? No, because he was such a... Not so much from Briggs, but from the broader idea of... No, he was... I mean, there was a tradition at Cape. Tom Mashler published some wonderfully imaginative books. I mean, he... And, he, you know, he's a, he, was, he was a brilliant children's publisher and, you know, did kind of Roald Dahl and all that, that Clinton Blake and so on and so forth. But he also did things like... You're probably too young, but there was a book called Masquerade. Do you know about that? No. Kit Williams. It was just a bit large format illustrated book, and you looked at the pictures, and in it, in each picture, were hidden clues to how you you. And if you solved all the clues, you go off to Wiltshire or somewhere and dig in a certain field, and you'd find the golden hair. Okay. And the whole country became totally obsessed by this. Was there a golden hat? Yeah, there was, yeah. and somebody found it. And he did Jonathan Miller's book on the human body, again, as big as an illustrated thing, and so on and so forth. So there was a tr- tradition of Cape doing sort of interested, quasi-illustrative books. And as, as a final thing, you mentioned you also worked with Philip Roth and Tom Wolfe. Were you, were you editing them? No. Or were you just publishing them in... I never met Philip Roth. I was just publishing. Okay. And would you have any interaction with the text or anything like no. that? Yeah. Absolutely not. Okay. I mean, I mean, I, I, I learned very early on with him yeah. that you just did what you were told. Okay. And if you didn't, you know, I, I did it, you know, those days you used to have sort of sales brochures. Yeah. 
which the reps, because the reps used to sell to the bookshops with them. And I made the mistake of producing one that compared him to John Updike in some way. And he found out about it within, I think, 48 hours. And we had to withdraw it and reprint it, etc., etc. And again, you know, the great Philip Roth had in my view, without any question, the worst book jackets of any major author of the last hundred years. Why? Because he always, you know, he chose them. He he employed Milton Glaser to do them. They were, as it were... He did, not his publisher. He did, he did. And they were 50 years behind their time, as it were. Yeah. And, you know, when I started, I said, oh, well, you know, we can do much better than this, Mr. Rock. You know, no way. You just did what you were told. Okay. And, And it was... After that, it was easy. Right. You know. Now that he's dead, will they be published differently? Well, they don't publish, yes, publish differently in paperback. Right. Okay. But the initial hardbacks will, will be in there. Okay. Well, look, we're, we're coming to the end of our time, but this was, this was really fascinating. Thank you for being such a, a gracious and candid guest and wishing you all the best with your uh, various projects. Thank you. So, Simon, I haven't had time, sadly, to listen to your conversation with Dan, but how did you find it? Uh, it was good. It was another wintry late afternoon in London, um, and there was uh, a bit of ambient noise in the office, which isn't, isn't fantastic. But, um, again, he's, a, he's a, a kind of legendary figure who people outside publishing don't know about. So he's famous as a, a sort of magical book doctor who's produced all these famous books, um, but obviously not a public name. And very interesting to talk to him. He's very self-effacing in a very English way, but clearly knew what he was about so uh yeah i felt a real privilege to talk to him um anyway this has been always take notes hosted by me simon Aikum. me eleanor hall our producer is nicola Keane. zara hankir does our social media our graphic design is by james edgar and our score is by jessica danheiser you can find us on social media we're at always take notes on facebook and instagram and take notes always on twitter And we'd love it if you could rate and review the podcast on iTunes. And if you fancy chipping into our crowdfunding campaign, that's on patreon.com slash always take notes. Thank you. Thanks.